Blog Talk Radio. Ha! I jumped in at the right time for once. Welcome to In the Closet Objectivist. This is one of your hosts, Dr. Megan Ribbon. Um, sending a shout out as always to my co-hosts, um, Corey and Stuart. I miss you guys. Um, and uh, because I'm soloing it, I am under absolutely no supervision, which is to the detriment of all. Um, but here I go. So you, let's start out with some housekeeping, which I am terribly neglectful of. Um, you can find us on Blog Talk Radio. Follow us. Supposedly you get alerts when um, I do an episode, which is um, hard to pin down a schedule because I'm usually recording it in between incubation periods. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, follow us there. Um, we have a Facebook page in the Closet Objectivist. Join in in the discussion. Um, we are also on TuneIn, Stitcher, iTunes, and um, Patreon. Yeah, we've, we've got a um, Patreon page. You can throw a couple bucks our way and accelerate Corey getting better. Um, so we stay on schedule because he's so much better about that than I am. Um, historically, my show prep has involved pouring myself a glass of wine. Um, so today's episode is called, um, I think it's called Space Exploration. <laughs> I'm looking at a completely different title here. Um, so, um, uh, blah, blah, blah. okay, I'm going to level with you. I had no idea what I was going to do for this episode. Um, I, as I mentioned before, I'm working on a series of podcasts that's being slow going and um, I haven't gotten the go-ahead to kick off the series yet, so that's probably for the best. Um, so here I am scrambling for something to talk about, and since I'm under no supervision, that means I can talk about whatever I want. And what I want is to an excuse to get caught up on the latest in the private space exploration industry. What does this have to do with objectionism? Not much. Um, really, this is a continuation of last week's episode because I wanted to expand on the positive vision for the world I'm trying to promote. So to flesh that out, I'm going to start with a quotation of Carl Sagan's from his book, Pale Blue Dot. Let's see. this. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering. Thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines. Every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage 
rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings. How eager they are to kill one another. How fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The Earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. Okay, so um, I I admire so much about Dr. Sagan. Um, he helped teach me how to vet factual claims, um, and he exemplifies eloquent passion for science and exploration. But I take a completely different view of that same pale dot. Um, I I love the imagery of of the mode of dust suspended in a sunbeam. But when I look at that pale blue dot, I'm I'm excited. I'm not humbled. I'm I'm in awe. I mean, two weeks ago I gave a twenty minute dissertation on a painting and a single stanza from a poem. And when I think of all the paintings and poems that have been created to say nothing of the novels, sculptures, machines, circuits, apps, codes that have been created, most of which I haven't even discovered, let alone appreciated. And they were all created in the last couple of millennia, all of them on that pale blue dot. I, I can't help but wonder what we could do with two dots. I mean, how many more stanzas, sculptures, sonatas, and scientific discoveries could we make if we inhabited two planets? Um, so that's really why I get jazzed about space exploration. Um, I have a lot more to say about that, but it's probably fodder for a whole other episode. So let's just review what's going on with private space exploration. 
in 2001, New York native engineer and founder of investment management group Wilshire Associates, that is Dennis Tito, um, became the first tourist to leave Earth's atmosphere. Since then, there have been only six other space tourists. The last was Serge Slay co-founder, I think it's Guy Lalibierte. Uh, I'm sorry, I my French is awful and my pronunciation is worse. Um, in any case, the last space tourist went um, into space in 2009. So we've been about nine years without any space tourism. But the industry is not inactive, to understate the point. Um, at about the same time as it got going, 2001, Elon Musk um, was deciding that there needed to be a disruption in rocket technology in order to afford to send capsules to Mars with seeds to see if we could grow plants on the red planet. His company, Space, one of his companies, SpaceX's first, first rocket called Falcon 1, named after the beloved Millennium Falcon of Star Wars, successfully launched in 2008. And I could not resist this little sound clip. On Solo, I'm captain of the Millennium Falcon. Chewie here tells me you're looking for passage to the Alderaan system. Yes, indeed. If it's a fast ship. Fast ship? You've never heard of the Millennium Falcon? Should I have? It's the ship that made the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs. I've outrun Imperial starships, not the local bulk cruisers, mind you. I'm talking about the big Carillion ships now. She's fast enough for you, old man. Awesome. Um, I, I love Hansel. He's one of my favorite characters of all time. Anyway, so SpaceX's Falcon 1, um, you might say the, the predecessor to the Millennium Falcon in another galaxy far, far away, um, launched in 2008. Since then, um, uh, SpaceX has been the first privately funded company to successfully launch um, orbit and recover a spacecraft in 2010. First private company to send a spacecraft to the International Space Station in 2012. First private company to send a satellite into geosynchronous orbit, which is not an easy thing to do to catastrophically understate the point. In 2013, first private space company to send a probe beyond low Earth orbit in 2013. 15, um, and the first landing of a first-stage orbital-capable rocket um, in 2015, and in 2016, the first water landing of a first-stage orbital-capable rocket. So that's, I, I, um, to, um, if you'll pardon the pun, I think they're safe to say they are gaining momentum. So um, there's another space, private space company I've been following is Bigelow Aerospace, and what they do is quite different. Um, it was founded in 1998 by Robert Bigelow um, and is funded in large part by the profit Bigelow gained through his ownership of the hotel chain Budget Suites of America. Um, Bigelow Aerospace has, been, has stated that they intend to create modular set of space habitats. These are, these are expandable um, space-worthy habitats um, and expanding space stations. 
So in 2006, they launched Genesis 1. Um, and um, the spacecraft performed as expected upon reaching orbit, inflated, deployed solar arrays, and started internal systems. Um, the mission was planned to last for five years um, and include observations across performance, um, you know, radiation within the the capsule, or I shouldn't say capsule, but the, the station, um, and so on. It remains in orbit to this day, which is pretty cool. They've also launched Genesis 2 in 2007, which remains in orbit, um, and uh, in 2016, um, they launched the Bigelow Expandable Activity Module, BEAM for short, on a SpaceX Dragon rocket and added an extension to the International Space Station. Is, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's um, kind of claustrophobic there, I'm told. So that's always nice to have a little, like, have it keep expanding and have more, you know, space. Um, it was initially slated as a two-year mission, monitoring leakage, radiation, and so forth. But in October 2017, they announced that the module would stay attached to the ISS for at least three more years with options for two further one-year extensions. Very cool. Um, so another company that just came on my radar um, is um, March of this year, Orion Span announced plans to build the Aurora Space Station, the first space hotel offering tourists a 12-day vacation in orbit for the low, low price of $9.5 million to be launched in 2021. I mean, I am never going to have that kind of money, but it, you know, it's still, since, you know, historically space tourism has involved um, between like 20 and 60 million, like that's a deep, deep discount and very, a very exciting step forward. Um, Sir Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, founded in 2004, is going to offer suborbital flights um, for a few minutes in microgravity. And the tickets run about a quarter of a million, um, and as of 2017, 650 tickets have been sold. And they've had their setbacks, but it's still, it's. I'm very excited about the fact that they they keep plugging away and. Um, Again, I don't think I'll ever have a quarter million dollars discretionary cash, but, you know, a girl can dream. Um, okay, so the company Blue Origin is developing a concept where it launches civilian astronauts into space via capsule, just like the old Gemini missions um, in the early 60s. Um, the company is targeting late 2018 or early 2019 for launches with humans aboard. So, I mean, again, it's, it's you know, maybe an 11-minute mission, but still not like anything on Earth. Um, and then Axiom Space is looking to send modules to the ISS in 2021 and have its own commercial space station um, for research and manufacturing by 20. 24, a self-proclaimed successor to the ISS. And this is my jam. Like, I've got, you know, science reasons for, um, you know, wanting space exploration to move forward. And if it's 
if you guys don't mind, I'll, I'm just going to digress a little bit. Because, I mean, I realize not everyone wants to, you know, feel microgravity or, um, you know, try to find life on Mars. So, you know, for them, what's, what's the payout for space exploration? And, and I, I, there's a sense in which I, I'm sympathetic to that. I'll, I'm not sure I'll ever really understand it because I've always been interested in space exploration. But I get it, you know, I don't think anyone should have their arm twisted to pay for NASA's budget. Um, that being said, um, I did my graduate work in biofilm. So step back a second. Um, we tend to think of microbes as being these single cells swimming around all by themselves. Um, and they do do that. It's called, um, they're called planktonic cells. They're physiologically, they're kind of on their own, right? Um, but the more we investigate um, bacteria in particular, but really all microbes um, in one way or another, we find them forming these communities. Um, indeed, if it's, they'll, they'll form them everywhere. I mean, they're, they're lining your gut. They're, if you scratch your teeth, that white stuff that comes off, that's, that's a bacterial biofilm. Um, the physiology is really, really interesting. So um, in, in places where there's some sort of turbulence, they'll actually form what looks like um, microscopic cities. So you'll see these sort of mushroom structures that are, you know, very analogous to skyscrapers. And in between the skyscrapers, these bacterial skyscrapers, um, you'll have avenues where um, nutrients can flow in and waste can flow out. There's communication between, um, I guess you'd call them like the different floors um, or, you know, strata within the biofilm. Um, um, they're made of complex material, which makes them ridiculously resistant to antibiotics. For, for example, when I, was, um, when I was studying them in grad school, you know, what it took to kill the, the individual planktonic cells in terms of um, antibiotic concentration, I'd have to increase that at least several thousand fold to get any kind of killing of the biofilm. It's, and, Realistically, you never do that to a human patient if you were trying to get rid of their biofilm. It, not only is it, you know, not real useful, but that much antibiotic is, has a lot of negative side effects no matter what the, the antibiotic is. Um, so, yeah, you don't do that. Um, so that, that leaves us in quite a con quandary, right? I mean, biofilms can really help certainly in our gut, um, but they can also really hurt us. So um, it's thought that, for example, chronic sinus infections um, are oftentimes a biofilm that, you know, forms on your sinuses, and every once in a while, the, the tops of the skyscrapers would just break off and um, start floating away and cause your immune system to react, and that's where you get like, these really uncomfortable sinus infection symptoms. Um, so you take my antibiotics, and that gets rid of the stuff that's broken off, but doesn't do anything for the biofilm. So you get chronic infections, right? Like you, you never actually fix the problem. You just treat the symptoms, really. Um, so what, what to do? Well, it's a very complex problem, um, as, you, <laughs> as you might have guessed. Um, 
there's a lot going on in these these microbial cities. Um, and what's interesting about studying biofilms in microgravity is that it isolates one of the variables, and that is um, diffusion within the biofilm. Um, there are a lot of sort of, I guess you'd say, confounding factors when um, you're studying a biofilm with this complex three-dimensional architecture. Um, I mean, even in static biofilms, there's a sense in which you get a certain tur turbulence as a result of being in gravity, like you are on Earth. Um, been the stuff in which you've got the biofilms, but that's just a different kind of turbulence, really. So how do you isolate um, what affects the biofilms in terms of um, movement of liquid versus just diffusion of molecules? Essentially, how do you separate out variables that are caused by being in gravity and just study the one variable of diffusion? Well, to do that, you realistically have to grow biofilms in space. And what's really interesting is that they've seen um, that um, organisms on the International Space Station are um, much more likely to form biofilms, both um, organisms that um, are clinically relevant that, you know, are opportunistic pathogens, for example, and, and just, you know, organisms that are trying to, trying to get by and really have no interest in the human body. It's, it's, like I said, it's very interesting um, and I think will be really valuable um, clinically. Now, I mean, I'm sure that, as I understand that there's, there's lots of other reasons to go into microgravity for manufactured reasons. But, you know, let's be honest, I am not a material science, so I don't really have a leg to stand on when I talk about that. Um, I can only kind of speak from, from what I'd find useful in um, going to space and studying biology there. So um, I could just keep lathering on, but hopefully I've made some sort of point. Um, so that I think I'll close out the episode um, and say, as always, I, I miss you, Corey. I miss you, Stuart. And I hope you guys are hearing this and, and not gagging. <laughs> Cheers to reasons.